Revelation 20 is the only place in the entire Bible that talks about this millennium. You can't find it anywhere else. And the debate over when this millennium will be and what will the nature of the millennium look like, it fills countless books, though we only find reference to it in such a small section of Scripture. Different eschatological views or or end times perspectives orbit around this millennium that we read about here in Revelation 20. So just listen to these different names. There's, there's premillennial, there's amillennial, there's postmillennial. Everyone's trying to figure out when the millennium is. Then, of course, there's the panmillennial, and they don't know. They just hope it pans out in the end. If you want to know those different perspectives, what they are, how they function in brief, I outlined all of that on the very first sermon on Revelation back on October 31st, Halloween. So go looking for that if you want to know more. But in short, amillennial and postmillennial believers both believe that the millennium is now, but they differ on how that looks. The premillennial perspective says that the millennium is coming in the future after Christ's bodily return. So that's a very brief version of how those three perspectives work. You know, I read in a few places that the millennium is a thousand years of peace that Christians love to fight about. But we're not going to fight today. Because I get to talk. And you get to listen. <laughs> so you should know I'm post-millennial. If you, if you haven't caught on to that by now, well, I guess you know now. I am post-millennial. Meaning I believe that Christ. Uh, that Christ is going to return at the end of the millennial period. Thus, we are living in the millennium right now, today. And I am fully aware that that has caused many of you to raise your eyebrows. And I'm sure a bunch of you have thought at different times, I agree with so much of the things that Pastor Fletch taught until all this post-millennial stuff. Well, that's all right. You know, I... I think that Emmanuel's probably lost some people because I've been preaching Revelation from a post-millennial perspective. But what else can I do except preach the word as I see it? As I see it. Try to be faithful to Scripture. And so as people have wrestled with the post-millennial view, as I have wrestled in the past, when I, you could say, converted into post-millennialism, there are two questions that I've heard probably more than any other through this sermon series, and they are these two questions. They go something like this. Look at all the evil in the world. Look how bad it is. Look at all the deceptive ideologies that are infiltrating society. How can Satan be bound? The other question is, seems like the world's in pretty bad shape. How can we possibly be living in the millennial reign of Christ? So the question is, how can we be living in the millennial reign of Christ, and how can Satan be bound? How is that possible right now? But I want you to notice the rationale behind both of those questions. It comes from people looking at the world rather than looking at Scripture. So what I want to do, my goal this morning, is to answer those two questions, showing you that Satan is bound today, that Christ, Christ's millennial reign is right now, and I want to do that by looking at Scripture. So I'm going to show you a lot of Scripture today. And then I hope that as we look at the millennial reign of Christ, that your passion for Great Commission activity intensifies, increases, spills out of this church into the Mohawk Valley, into the state of New York, into our world. But at the end of it all, if you disagree with me, that's okay. Not everybody has to be post-millennial. No matter what your eschatological perspective is, if you still await Christ's bodily return, if you still await the resurrection of the dead, if you still await a final judgment, then we can happily fellowship with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. We all have this in common. We all who are truly lovers of Scripture, lovers of the Word, orthodox in our faith. Okay, enough introduction. Let's read about the millennium. Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 6. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. 
And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Father, we were the foolish things of the world, and how prone to folly we are, prone to error, prone to following our own desires and getting caught up in the passions of this world. So this morning, God, grant us grace by the power of your Holy Spirit that we might understand with wisdom, that we might see Scripture truly. Help us to be faithful to your word, God. And where we disagree, let us love one another in unity, honoring Christ in all things, even in the reception of your word this morning. I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. So if you remember from last week's sermon, there was a, a massive pivot which occurred in this part three of Revelation. Part three of Revelation beginning in chapter 12 and moving to the end of the book. The old covenant was entirely torn down and abolished, obliterated through the destruction of Jerusalem. And then we began to perceive the things of the new covenant. That's the pivot that's happening. We're beginning to see the things of the new covenant, things in which we live today, for we live within the new covenant today. And this pivot occurs as John hears and then he sees. He heard Babylon had fallen. He heard the church worshiping as a result. He heard that the marriage supper of the Lamb had come. And then finally, John sees the things that he had been hearing about. He saw a rider on a white horse. As I said last week, that was a, a symbol of the gospel's conquest of the earth. And now John sees an angel coming down out of heaven. Soon he will see thrones and people seated on them. And so we're being shown the things of the new covenant. John sees an angel coming down from heaven in chapter 20, verse 1. It's not the first time that we have seen Jesus depicted as an angel, symbolically. We've seen it numerous times in Revelation, but I want to draw your attention to one particular time from Revelation chapter 10. John writes, Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud, with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillar of fire. He had a little scroll opened in his hand. Consider the locations involved in that verse. Jesus descends from heaven unto the earth. Heaven coming to earth in Jesus. The little scroll in Christ's hand, in the mighty angel's hand, is finally open. That was a scroll all the way back in chapter 5 that nobody was able to open. And then Christ appears, worship erupts, because only he, the lamb who was slain, is able to open this scroll. In chapter 10, it is open. This is the scroll of the new covenant that he opened because he is the lamb that was slain. He opened it by his blood. And all of that occurred back in part 2 of Revelation chapter 10. Now we're in part three. We're getting mirroring images. 
Jesus descends like an angel. He descends from heaven unto earth, heaven coming down to earth. But this time we're getting another symbolic image of the new covenant that only he has the power to bring. We're being shown the effects of the new covenant, of heaven breaking upon earth, of the coming of the kingdom of God. We read about that in chapter 11. The kingdom of God has become the kingdom of the earth. And one massive effect of the dawning of the new covenant upon the earth is that the Lord Jesus Christ binds Satan. This first verse of chapter 20, we find some signals that help us to interpret the things that follow. First, as we have noted, Jesus is being symbolized as an angel descending from heaven. But is Jesus an angel? He is not an angel. This is a symbol, so we should not understand that literally. Additionally, remember Satan himself, he is a spiritual being. He doesn't have a physical body. Therefore, a great chain that binds him is not meant to be understood literally. It is not a physical chain. Rather, these depictions are symbolic. It's symbols, or it signals that we have entered into symbolic territory, as so much of Revelation is. Now, look at verses 2 and 3 again. And he, Christ, this angel, he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. This releasing of Satan for a little while after the 1,000 years. I'm not even going to deal with that today. We'll look at that a little more next week. When Jesus, the Son of God, was hanging lifeless on a cross, Satan was celebrating. He thought that he had just achieved the victory. There's the Son of God, dead, How can this man now bring the kingdom of God? He is dead. And like all who have died before him, he is going to head off into the darkness of the abyss. He is dead. That's what the devil thought. Because in three days, Christ rose from that grave. And a short time, he ascended to the right hand of the Father where he now reigns as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is even the Lord and the King of that ancient serpent, the devil. And so in a shocking turn of events, the tomb was the trap and Jesus was the bait and Satan was all too eager to lead humanity to kill the Christ. But it was his own defeat. And here in Revelation 20, John The one receiving this revelation is intentionally appropriating language from Jesus' burial. It is not Jesus who is sealed and shut up in darkness. It is Satan. See that in in verses 2 and 3? Satan is the one who is shut up and sealed in the tomb, in the darkness, in the abyss. Therefore, this passage does not literally mean that Satan currently exists in the abyss, bound with chains. Rather, this is symbolism showing us that Jesus has spelled Satan's doom with the very implements that Satan once tried to kill the Christ with. How could Satan have predicted that? The good news of Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension is a simultaneous proclamation that Satan has been defeated. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, And deliver all those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. Through Christ's death, Jesus defeated the devil. Definitively. 
his doom is secured. In next week's passage, we will see the final doom of Satan. But that is not where we are this week. He is not being destroyed. He is being bound. An important distinction. And so let us consider with with Bible in hand what Scripture has to say about the binding of Satan. I'm going to read a number of passages for you. Colossians 2.14 God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. 1 John 3.8 The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. John 12.31 Jesus says, Now is the time Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And later, in John 16, Jesus says, the ruler of this world is judged. So let's put all of that together. Satan is disarmed. He is shamed. His works are destroyed. He is cast out. He is judged. Everywhere you look in the New Testament, you see that Jesus has both defeated Satan and limited him. Or like we read in Revelation 20, Jesus bound Satan. In a parable form, Jesus even told us that he was going to bind Satan. We read it in a few of the Gospels, but here we find it in Matthew 12. Jesus said, But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. In this short parable, the strong man is Satan. The strong man's house is the earth. The strong man's goods are people. Now since Christ cast out demons... We see that all over the Gospels. It means that the kingdom of God has come, that it is among us. Therefore, with the dawn of the kingdom of God, Jesus has entered the strong man's house and he has bound him. And now Christ is setting free the captives. Now we who, are, who were bound are being freed. Ephesians 4.8 Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high... He led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Jesus came to the earth. He established the kingdom of God. He bound the strong man, and he ascended into heaven with a host of captives now freed. More on the gifts that he gave those captives in just a bit. You see, even while Christ was on earth, he said that he would bind Satan. And he has. And now the devil is disarmed and he is shamed and his works are destroyed and he is cast out and he is judged because the king has come and he has bound the dragon. He is the Lord of all lords, over all lords, even him who was once called the Lord of this earth, Satan. But there is a critical component of Satan's binding which we need to see in verse 2. Look at verse 2. Satan is bound as it relates to his deception of the nations. Do you see that? That means that Satan's power on earth hasn't been eliminated. Like he's just been evicted from the planet, so to speak. It means that the way in which Satan used to deceive the nations during the Old Covenant age, has been limited in this new covenant age, in the kingdom of God, in the millennial reign of Christ. So what do I mean? Before God came a man, sorry, before God became a man, Satan was the ruler of this world, as I have said. Paul goes so far to say, The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers and that everyone who walks in unrepentant sin is following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit now at work in the sons of disobedience. He's talking about Satan. 
the God of this world, the ruler of the air. And Satan's primary work on earth was to deceive the nations. That's what he wanted. That's what he worked towards. He wanted to blind them, that they might not see God. He wanted to bind them, that they would live condemned in their own prisons of sin. But the gospel of Jesus Christ brings light and it brings freedom to all who are blind and bound. With the good news of God's grace, Christ has removed the chains from his disciples, from the sons and daughters of God, and with mighty nail-scarred hands, he takes those weighty chains and he foists them upon the ruler of this world, the former ruler of this world. Now Satan is condemned, not the elect. The deceiver of the nations is bound. The gospel of Jesus Christ, crucified and risen, ascended and reigning, these are the very cords that bind Satan. The gospel. The gospel are the cords that bind Satan. The gospels do give us, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, do give us numerous examples of this. But I'll point you to a one particularly powerful story. Because Jesus sent out 72 disciples at one point. And they went out. Jesus told them to, to bring peace, to bring healing, to declare that the kingdom of God had come. And there they went. They were preaching the gospel. And then we read, the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Jesus hadn't told them to go out casting out demons. But even the demons are subject to us in Christ's name, they say. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. As the disciples proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom of Christ in prophetic symbolism, Jesus said that he saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. You see, it's the gospel that brings an end to Satan's dominion. And in its place is established the dominion of the Son of God, the kingdom of God. All of this is a picture of the new covenant age and how the church will tread on serpents and scorpions. Serpents and scorpions are symbols of the demonic. We're not... Some people like to handle snakes from the stage. It's not at all what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about how through Christ, we have dominion over the enemy. But how could the church tread upon supernatural beings if Christ had not first bound them? They are supernatural beings. You're only natural. Christ had to bind them first, and he bound them with a life perfectly lived, and with a law fulfilled, and with a cross stained with blood, and with a tomb that has no body, and with an everlasting dominion. That's how Christ bound them. And though it's not how we should form our eschatology, not at all, it is helpful. Let us consider for a moment the course of human history. In the Old Covenant, only the Jews and a relatively small number of converts had access to God. The rest of the entire planet was governed by the deceptions of Satan. And look at the Gospels in your Bible. Were there not demon-possessed people everywhere? And nobody seems to be surprised when a demon-possessed person shows up. But since Christ has come, since he has established a new covenant in his precious blood, billions have come to Christ. Demonic possession is on the fringes. And nations, whole nations, have been founded on Judeo-Christian values. Do we not live in one? 
This is what Christ did when he established his kingdom, and we live in his kingdom today. Not a kingdom perfected, but his kingdom nonetheless. He is on heaven's throne, and we live in the age where Satan has been bound by the gospel of Christ. We live today in the millennium. And to further evidence this, let us consider what else John has to say about the millennium in the next section. Look at verses 4 through 6 with me. Then I saw thrones, and seated on those, and seated on them were those to whom authority to judge had, was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark upon their foreheads or hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Verse 4, the whole section, is clearly talking about resurrection. Resurrection that's already happened. We need to think carefully about what John means here. But before we think about resurrection, let's think about these thrones. So far in Revelation, the only ones that have been given thrones are the 24 elders. And back when we studied chapter 4, I showed you that the 24 elders are symbols, representatives of the entire church. For isn't it to the church that Christ makes this promise? The one who conquers... And who keeps my works until the end. To him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule with them, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. So all who overcome, who live by faith, rule with Christ. And we need not wait until the end of time to receive those thrones, to receive that rule. Christ has given us these thrones now. Ephesians chapter 2. God raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Christ ascended to the right hand of the Father to sit on the throne. And we are seated with Christ on thrones. What a gift God has given to us rescued captives. Yes, all those who are in Christ have been seated with Christ and they reign with Christ. You are seated with Christ today. You reign with Christ today. So if we've been given these thrones, if I'm saying we reign with Christ today, then what in the world does that look like? In the millennial age. How do we exercise that dominion? Jesus told us. This was right after James and John were arguing about who should be seated next to Jesus. Jesus says, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whomever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Christians reign through serving, through giving our lives away for the sake of others. We reign in righteousness and peace and joy. We reign through proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We reign by teaching the nations to live in obedience to him who is their king. And we do not wait for this reign to begin. What a mistake that would be. It has already begun in the new covenant age. We reign with Christ today for we live in this millennium. Christ reigns in heaven. 
And he extends that reign to earth through his body, through his church, through his ambassadors. So what of this resurrection that we're reading about in verses 4 through 6? John shows us that these people who have been martyred for their testimony of Jesus, they were beheaded. It's interesting that they didn't receive that mark on their forehead, so their head gets cut off. It's a great symbol of their faithfulness. We were introduced to them back in chapter 6. We saw them under the altar, heaven's altar, and they were crying out to God for justice. And then later God grants them justice through the destruction of Jerusalem. And now they are present in the blessings of the new covenant. That's what we're seeing in Revelation 20. So also are those that do not bow their knees to false gods that have not received the mark on the forehead or hand. As we read this, we must remember, and I've said this numerous times throughout this sermon series, Revelation does not use time in a conventional way. It it both compresses and stretches time. And so, in a number of places, you see both the advent and the consummation compressed into a single symbolic image. The New Testament works in a very similar way. It talks about how you were saved when you came to faith in Jesus Christ. And then it talks about when you die and are resurrected, how you will be saved on that day. It's a compression of both the advent and the consummation. The pattern is present here in Revelation 20. All the saints, whether they lived during the Old Covenant or the New, all of them were saved through their faith in Jesus Christ. Do you realize that? Moses was saved through his faith in Jesus Christ. The prophet Joel was saved through his faith in Jesus Christ. The Old Testament saints, they may not have known the name Jesus but they placed their faith in the promises that pointed to Jesus. That's what Hebrews 11 is all about, the great hall of faith, where we read, For by faith the people of old received their commendation. Faith in Jesus. Faith in the promises of God that pointed to Jesus. Then Hebrews 12.1 says that we are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, The saints of old, listen to this, the saints of old are in some living and present way with the saints of today. Later in Hebrews, we even read this. You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. As you have come to Jesus, you have also come to all the saints. He unifies you with all. In fact, communion is a very symbol of that reality. All who are alive in Christ are alive together. We are joined by our union to Christ now and forevermore. And how is that? Why is that? Because the moment that you came to faith in Jesus, you were resurrected. That might be a stunning statement, but how true it is. The moment you came to faith in Jesus Christ, you were resurrected. Verse 6 calls it the first resurrection. Ephesians 2, back in Ephesians 2, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Colossians 2, having been buried with with Christ in baptism in which you were also raised with him, through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead 
And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Romans 6. Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. The New Testament heralds that glorious new covenant reality. You have been resurrected, raised with Christ. You have been made alive together with Jesus that you may walk in newness of life. This is the first resurrection. And it is a spiritual resurrection. The second resurrection we will see in next week's passage. When the dead in Christ are raised unto eternal life. For those who do not believe, that resurrection, that is their entrance into the second death. An eternal and spiritual death. The first death, we all experience it, right? That's when these bodies expire. There is a first and physical death, and then there is a second and spiritual death, an eternal death. The inverse of that is that there is a spiritual resurrection, and then a second and physical resurrection. You see, there are effects in both directions here. The first resurrection, our spiritual resurrection, our regeneration, our coming to faith in Jesus Christ, it's a spiritual reality, though it has physical effects, the works of our hands, the actions that we do. And then the second resurrection is physical. Our bodies come back to life. And there is certainly a spiritual reality that goes along with it. Likewise with the first and second deaths. But the focus I think, works in beautiful symmetry. This first resurrection exists within the new covenant, within the kingdom of God. It is, an, it is a reality that exists today in the millennial reign of Christ. Like verse 6 says, Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. For if you participate in the first resurrection, then the second death, hell, will have no power over you. So your body will die. This body will expire. But like Jesus said, though you die, yet shall you live. Because you have experienced the first resurrection, therefore you will be given the second resurrection. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Certainly not the accuser, Satan, for he has been bound. Because if God is for us, then who can be against us? As verse 6 ends in chapter 20, God takes us, the redeemed, those who have been freed from captivity, and he makes us into priests and kings. And does that not also accord with what Scripture says is true today? 1 Peter 2.9 But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a kingly priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Or like Revelation began, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests unto his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. In Christ, we are kings and priests today. Right now, we have been raised to reign with Christ in righteousness, peace, and joy, in serving or ministering to the nations as priests, leading the nations to God through gospel proclamation. That is a priestly role. And Revelation 20 tells us that we will reign like this for a thousand years. Christ has opened the way and he has bound the enemy 
for a thousand years. Aha! It's 2022. 2,000 years have passed. How can we be living in a thousand year reign of Christ? Let's not lose track of how revelation literarily works. Every time we've come across a number in Revelation, it held symbolic meaning, and 1,000 is no different. In fact, we've already seen multipliers of 1,000 used five different times in Revelation. Chapter 5, verse 11. Chapter 7, verses 4 through 8. Chapter 9, verse 16. Chapter 14, verse 1. And chapter 14, verse 20. Each time, the intention is not a literal number, but a symbol of a vast amount, a, a consummate number, a fullness Enormity. And there are many, many places in Scripture that use the number 1,000, not literally, but symbolically, for a vast number. I'm going to breeze through a number of those, a small sampling. Psalm 50, verse 10. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. So does God only own a thousand hills? Is the one thousand and first hill not his? He possesses all the hills. A mighty vast number of hills. Deuteronomy 1.11 The Lord your God has multiplied you, and behold, you are today as numerous as the stars of the heaven, as stars of heaven. May the Lord, the God of your fathers, make you a thousand times as many as you are and bless you as he has promised you. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past. Just a few examples. And in each case, you're going to have some major issues if you take 1,000 to be literal. Why then do so many insist that in one of the most symbolic books of the Bible, 1,000 is a literal time frame? Rather, it seems that 1,000 years, this millennium, is a symbol for a great and vast span of time. For all we know, it could be thousands upon thousands upon thousands of years. God's not revealed its actual literal length. Maybe it's tomorrow. But what we do know, because Scripture tells us, is that this millennium is long enough to fulfill the following passages. Luke chapter 13. Jesus said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It's like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden. And it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nest in its branches. In Mark's version of that parable, the tree grows to fill the whole garden. And again, Jesus said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. Jesus was the seed that was cast into the earth. And we, the church, are the growing tree, abiding in him, bearing much fruit. We are the leaven that Christ has placed into the mixture of this earth. And he will fold it, and he will pound it, and he will heat it until the leaven has filled the earth with the bread of the new covenant rather than the unleavened bread of the old. So perhaps when we look around at the bad things of the earth and things look troubling and difficult, And it might seem like the end of the world is just around the corner. Maybe, just maybe, that's God stretching the dough, folding it and pressing it down, making something new. From Daniel chapter 2. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. 
Christ's kingdom was not destroyed at the cross, and it will not be destroyed by the course of history, and the church will not limp beleaguered into the end of time. Instead, the kingdom of men will fall before him who stands forever. Or as Josiah read earlier, the wisdom of men will be brought to nothing because of the wisdom of God. Isaiah 9, 7. Of the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the, Lord, the, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So Christ's kingdom will be one of eternal increase, not a, a kingdom of all of the sudden and then done, but of growth of progress, of an increase. Of its increase, there will be no end until, like Habakkuk 2.14 says, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The increase of Christ's kingdom will not end until it covers the planet. The millennial age is an, is an amount of time large enough for all of this to be accomplished. So take note. It all happens progressively. The world is evangelized progressively as the church fulfills the Great Commission. And as we do, the gates of hell will not prevail against us. Even the binding of Satan. You see, even the binding of Satan occurs through the advance of the gospel, the binding of Satan is also something that happens progressively. Hebrews chapter 2, now in putting everything in subjection to Christ, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him. Meaning we know it's in subjection to Christ, even though it might not look like it's in subjection to Christ. Because that's the work of the church. We are commissioned to go to the ends of the earth and there be a light. To offer hope to the nations in the face of Jesus Christ. We are unified to Jesus as his body. And as his body, we must be his hands and his feet. Subjecting this world to him. You see, scripture is clearly teaching us. We're seeing its reflections here. Christ is the second Adam. But because of Adam, Adam sinned, right? And he failed and he fell. And he was not able to fulfill his calling. What was the calling of Adam? What did God commission Adam to do? To be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. And so after defeating the sin of Adam, Christ has taken up the calling of Adam. Christ is bearing much fruit. We are that fruit. He is multiplying through the church. He is extending his dominion as he sends out his kingdom of priests. And through the church, he is crushing the head of Satan. That's why Paul, you know, all, of the, all of these things are inaugurated in Christ, initiated but it's actualized progressively through the work of the church. So Paul can write in Romans 16.20, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. We know that at the cross, Jesus crushed the head of the serpent. But now we see that it's through the church he's crushing the head of the serpent. Because Christ inaugurated it, and it is being actualized progressively through the church. And the millennial reign of Christ will go on like this until the end. When Christ delivers the kingdom of God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death.
That's 1 Corinthians 15, verses 24 through 26. In my mind, the clearest expression of the end of history. When all the enemies of God have been subjected by Christ through the church, then Christ resurrects the dead and death is defeated. Brothers and sisters, I do hope that you can see that we are living in the new covenant millennial reign of Christ. And if you disagree with me, I hope you can see that it does make sense to think so. But through the cross, Christ's reign began. And he bound Satan. And through faith in the cross, we are extending that reign and further crushing the head of Satan. So let us remember that we are a kingdom of priests, alive unto God and sent into this world with a great commission to proclaim the gospel to all nations, to teach them everything that Jesus has commanded. Jesus, their Lord, to who all authority and power, to all authority in heaven and on earth has been given. Because today, Jesus is setting free captives to live in newness of life. And by proclaiming that, we reign with Christ. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. Father, we thank you for such great gifts that you give to former captives in Jesus Christ. We thank you for the freedom so costly to purchase. But with the joy set before him, Christ went to that cross and he bought our freedom. How we praise you, Father. Help us to be faithful to Christ and to the calling of Christ to go into this world, to our families and to our jobs, our communities, and tell them about the King. Show them how to live in obedience. Help us to live in obedience. We praise you in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.